Well, I hope above all that you have come to recognize that this morning, what we just sang, that all other ground is sinking sand. You know, we sing those words, but often we live as though that other ground is quite sturdy, quite stable, quite firm, uh, but it is not. And so it's a good reminder to us that all the things that we could build our lives on, all the ways that the world Uh, That Satan through the world, through the flesh, tempts us to cling to the things of this life. All the ways that he holds out, the the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, holds out this world's things as treasures to us to be held on to and loved dearly. It is so nice to be reminded that all of that is just sinking sand. So let's remember that this week as we go out. As we go out into the world, as we relate to the things, the good things that God has provided, you know, we turn many good things into the ground upon which we stand. They're gifts. They're gifts from the giver. And so let's worship him and build our lives on his perfect son. If you would go with me this morning to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 2. Today we begin looking at one of the most significant passages in all of Scripture. Now, preachers have a tendency to say that about every passage. Uh, So I've said that a lot of times, I'm sure. Uh, But this is, in terms of the storyline of the Bible, in terms of the great story of redemptive history, in terms of the meta-narrative, the big story of Scripture, this is one of those key moments of significance. The giving of of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. That's where we are. And it's interesting, it's right in the center of the book of Exodus, right in the dead center. These commandments, which we find here in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, so those are the two places in the Scriptures where you have the Ten Commandments listed, here, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, These commandments are the summation of God's holy law. We're meant to understand that, that all the the 600 and some commandments that we find in uh, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, the books of Moses, the law of Moses, that, that all the laws that are found there are summed up underneath these, two, these ten commandments. God's holy law, a summation of it. And they have been referred to as a statement of God's moral law. This is God's moral law spelled out for all, specifically, though, as Israel's constitution. So uh, these have not been understood as just ten of many laws, but rather, uh, and not just as a summation of the law, but as a a, a sort of constitutional document, the Ten Commandments representing a constitutional document for the people of God. Later, we will see them inscribed on two tablets of stone. And those two tablets of stone are placed in the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Listen to how Paul describes God's law in Romans chapter 7, verse 12. This is Paul who says you're uh, dead to the law. This is Paul who has talked about how we've been freed from the law. He says in Romans 7, verse 12, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Now, in Romans 7 there, he's talking about uh, what sin in us does with the law and what the law does to us because of our sin. But in the midst of all of that, we cannot miss how Paul himself views the law, holy and righteous and good. And this, of course, echoes the words of Psalm 19, Verses 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect. And many of you may have this memorized. You're familiar with this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then the psalmist goes on to use this language about the preciousness of God's law, of God's word. More to be desired are they than gold, even much 
fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Here we are seeing, I think, the the mindset of Christ. As we see him tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan takes him, uh, well, the spirit leads him out into the wilderness, and there Satan tempts him. And as Satan is tempting him, we know that he puts before him all the glories of this world, the glorious, uh, all, all the glories of the kingdoms of this world. And I think the heart of Christ is depicted here as he sees all of that and he says, no, 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 no. The way of the Lord, the word of the Lord, God's truth is more to be desired than all of it. More to be desired than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. This is what God's law is. Last week, we looked at God's meeting with his people on the mountain, and we talked about two things. So just to to review briefly, first, we looked at the awesome scene, the awesome scene, booming thunder, lightning flashes, a thick cloud, the sound of a trumpet, a very loud trumpet, and the trumpet sound is getting louder and louder. And as I said last week, I think the imagery there is of the approach of a king, You have the king himself descending upon the mountain. He's approaching, and it is as though the angelic hosts are declaring his approach with the trumpet sound. The mountain is smoking and shaking as the Lord has come down in fire. God himself begins to speak with Moses in front of the people. And Moses and the Lord are having a dialogue in front of the people As all of this is taking place, the people are hearing the Lord speak to Moses. They're hearing the Lord respond to Moses. This is what the people experienced as they approached the foot of the mountain to meet with Yahweh. The mountain trembled and they trembled. So we looked at that last week, the the awesome scene. And then secondly, the alarming stipulations. God tells Moses... That there are to be no curious onlookers or unconsecrated priests. Uh, That uh, as the people gather at the foot of the mountain, there there are not to be any people who start to kind of come up or sort of lean in, get too close, try to make their way up the mountain so they can see the source of all this might and power so that they can curiously take hold of God. No. No. Nothing of that sort is to happen. Nothing of the sort that we find in Genesis 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel. Man's own approach to God. Man's own conceived notions and imaginations of how he ought to relate to God. Boldness in sin to approach the holy God in his or her own way. No, none of that is to take take place lest God break out against the people and they perish. If the people break through, God will break out and he will punish them. God is to be treated as holy, as set apart, as pure. And the people are to recognize and all of the sort of bathing rituals and the washing of the clothes that we talked about a couple of weeks ago are meant to to demonstrate the reality that there is the need for cleansing. There is the presence of sin. And that sin is an affront to God. God is sinless. He is pure. He is perfect. And we are not those things. God is holy. And so words like awesome, glory, holy. uh, The part of scripture that we are in right now, Exodus 19 and going into 20, but specifically thinking about last week, Exodus 19 helps us to understand what these words really mean. These are Bible words. These are church words. These are often slogans that become for us meaningless. Glory, awesome, holy. We just throw these words around like a farmer scatters seed. But these words have so much meaning. 
And when we come to a passage like Exodus 19, we're meant to to get a, a, a great deal of understanding of what these words are saying, what these words are implying, how these words are instructing us about the Lord. All those words that Trey read to us in Psalm 145 earlier, all of those words that are mentioned there are filled with meaning after meditating on and studying a passage like Exodus 19. Today we come to the Ten Commandments, or at least an introduction to the Ten Commandments. This morning we'll spend our time looking at the first two verses of chapter 20, and then I'll be away next week at a conference, and uh, Trey will be taking us back to Philippians, and then the following week, Lord willing, we will return to the Ten Commandments and begin by looking at the first commandment. So here we are with these first two verses in chapter 20, the introductory words or the prologue that comes right before the giving of the commandments. You cannot just jump straight to the commandments. You can't jump straight to what God is commanding of his, to his people, what he's demanding of his people. You have to soak in these first two verses. In a sense, you, you fail to understand the meaning of the Ten Commandments if you fail to get these two verses firmly in place. And so the title for the sermon this morning is The Lord Behind the Law. So if you would stand with me, we're going to read God's word together. And we are going to read chapter 20 up through verse 17. But as I said, today we'll just focus on the first two verses. This is the word of God. Exodus 20, beginning of verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me, or you could translate that in my face or in front of me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. By the way, idolatry is to hate God. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go ahead and be seated. I just have to go ahead and read verse 18 as well. I'll do that. You don't have to stand back up. Uh, Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. This is coming out of all the trembling that is going on. This is the holy God. Must we never forget that. Let's pray. Ask for his grace as we come to his word this morning. Father, we thank you for what you have put before us today. Our meal as a church for this week. Uh, From your word, and God, we ask that it would uh, be truly worked into 
each of our hearts, each of our lives, that it would show up in our behavior, uh, that it would uh, be borne out in our motives, God, that our affections would be changed as a result of this time in your word, and Lord, that we would love more faithfully, that we would hope and, and trust more faithfully, God. We, we pray that you would guide us through this hour. We pray that your word would be clearly taught and understood. We ask, Father, now that you would remove all distractions from our minds, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to be present here and now. Lord, how challenging that is to be present in the moment. Even the world recognizes the need to do that. And Father, we see here this morning that this is not just any moment to be present in, but this is a moment in your holy word. And God, we ask that your spirit would take hold of our minds, take hold of our ears, take hold of our longings and our hearts, any worries, any delights that could just take over our minds, Lord, that you'd protect us from the evil one. Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. And God, we ask that this morning that we would be made more holy as you promise us, Lord, that you would fully equip us by your word, that you would make us wise unto salvation through Christ Jesus, that you would uh, make us to grow like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Father, that you would do these things that you say that you will do by your word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Lord Behind the Law, because these introductory words focus on the lawgiver himself. Uh, he is in view. God himself is under the spotlight as we come to these first two verses. Who is this one who commands his people? Who is the Lord behind the law? Uh, those are the answers that we get in these first two verses. And from these verses, we find two sets of truths about him here. And I want you to Look at them. You can look at them up here on the screen. Write them down if you would like. But here they are, two sets of truths that we find about Yahweh, the lawgiver, about the Lord who commands his people. So first, he relates and reveals. And second, he redeems and requires. So let's look first at he relates and reveals. Look at verse 1 to the first part of verse 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God. I am the Lord your God. Before giving any commands, the Lord reminds his people of who he is. And more specifically, of who he is to them. And notice that. It's not just that God says, this is who I am. He says, this is who I am to you. He reveals who he is to them. He is their God. He says, I am Yahweh, your God. In other words, this God, the I am God Yahweh. And remember, he reveals himself at the burning bush as the I am. And we could understand Yahweh, though linguists argue over this. We could understand Yahweh, I think, to be he is the third person expression of that. God says, I am, and his people say, he is. I think we could understand Yahweh in that way. So he is their God. He is Yahweh, your God, as he says. This God, the I am God, Yahweh, has attached himself to this particular people. Now, we say that really quickly, but consider this. This infinite and eternal God has chosen to identify himself with a finite and temporal people. He is the I am with you God. He attaches himself to his people so that he becomes named by his people. He becomes named in relation to his people. And we know that this goes all the way back to the patriarchs in Genesis at the burning bush, how does God reveal himself to 
Moses. Well, as I just said, he calls himself the I am. He says, I am who I am. But he also says that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And get this, this is amazing. God will always be. He will always be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Isn't that amazing that he would take these men? I mean, we know that Abraham's descendants were, uh, Abraham's ancestors rather, were pagans. They were idol worshipers. Isn't it amazing to consider that God would take this man, totally undeserving of any grace from God, he hasn't merited anything from God, that God would choose him and grace him and show him favor and then forever, get this, forever attach his name to him. And when we read of Abraham's sins and when we read of Isaac's sins, as we think about his interactions with his sons, and when we read of Jacob's sins, his deception, his opportunism, and so forth, when we read of these things, it becomes that much more profound that this holy God, this perfect God, this incomprehensible, eternal, infinite God would join himself to that. But that's what God has done. He has joined himself to this people. And he has done so through promise, through covenant. That is how God joins himself to his people, through promise, through covenant. And in fact, the language that we find here at the beginning or throughout Exodus 20 is very typical of covenantal or treaty documents in the ancient Near East. And so you can go back and you could look at Look at Hittite documents, for example, or other ancient Near Eastern documents. And you can see that there is a particular a covenantal, uh, there's a structure uh, to, to a treaty, to a covenant that existed uh, on the human level. And the Lord uses this to relate to his people. Of course, that existed because of God's providence and God's sovereignty. So God is behind it, but also he's working out of it as he constructs a covenant with his people. The form of the Ten Commandments has been identified as a suzerainty treaty. And you may maybe have heard this language before. A suzerainty treaty like those of other peoples in the ancient world. Though it differs in some respects. So not a one-to-one correlation all the way through. But it's been identified by Old Testament scholars in that way. A suzerainty treaty or suzerain vassal treaty was one in which a ruler or conqueror promised protection and benefit to those under him on the condition that they abide by certain stipulations. And so you have a particular structure that that takes politically and socially in the interactions there in the ancient Near East. The format involved naming the king, reminding of the historical relationship between the suzerain and the vassal, And then the giving of stipulations and sanctions. This is what you are to do. And this is what will happen if you do not do that. And that is what we have here. And in this naming portion here in verse 2, God is telling us something important about himself. So in verse 2, we get the naming of the king. at The beginning of verse 2. And God is telling us something important here about himself. And here it is. He enters into relationship with. With his people. He knows his people. He loves his people. And he calls his people to know and love him in a personal relationship. So this God who issues commands is not some distant deity or harsh overlord. If you were to just come to the Ten Commandments without verses 1 to 2 then you would just see command, 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 and then sanction. This is what you are to do. And if you do not do it, this is what will happen. But what we have instead is this full relationship between God and his people. No, he is not a distant deity or a harsh overlord. He enters into the lives of his people with promise and faithfulness, with goodness and blessing. And let me just say a thing here about parenting. 
You know, we do the same or ought to do the same with our children as we think about the the stipulations and the sanctions which must be present in any home. We tell our children what they are to do and what they are not to do and, and what will happen if they do those things, if they disobey us. But all of that has to come out of a personal relationship. And I'm really convinced that a lot of the reason why children struggle so much, and, I, and think about even in Christian families as they grow up and they become teenagers, is because there's, there's so much stipulation and sanction and not enough personal relationship between us and our kids. And part of it is because we have such a personal relationship with our phones or whatever else, our hobbies, our projects around the yard or whatever, that we are so focused on those things and not our children that we're quite happy to give them stipulations and sanctions, but where's the bond Where's that relational dynamic out of which those stipulations must come? God shows us what it is to be a father. He teaches us that there must be the context of relationship. Promise and faithfulness, goodness and blessing flowing from a heart that holds Sin accountable. That makes demands. The Ten Commandments we have to see flow out of this relationship. Our obedience to commands flows out of a personal relationship of trust. Let me say that again. Our obedience to all the commands of Scripture. And by the way, don't think as though the commands are just in the Old Testament. That's silly. There are all sorts of commands in the New Testament. All sorts of imperatives in the New Testament. God commands us to obey. He commands us to do. And all of these commands flow out of a personal relationship of trust in which we daily pray, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. We never say in truth, yes, Lord, without also saying, yes, Abba. He is Lord and he is Abba. He is Lord and he is Daddy. He is both of those things always at the same time. Our obedience flows out of this relationship. And when it doesn't, it just becomes legalistic and judgmental and self-righteous and all those nasty things. So how is it that God relates to his people? We see here that he does relate to his people. He reveals himself as the God here who relates. But how is it that he relates to his people? How does an infinite and eternal God And much of Christian theology concerns trying to work these things out. God is is way, way, way up there. Super duper transcendent. He defines transcendence. Incomprehensible. How is it that this God relates to us here in this room? How does an infinite, eternal God relate to finite and temporal human beings? Well, the answer is revelation. God reveals himself. He gives his words. God gives us his words. This is how God has chosen to communicate to us. And that's exactly what we find here in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. And God spoke all these words. Words. God speaks. God gives words. And he gave this to all of his people. This, this is an amazing scene. Everyone is there at Sinai. Imagine, I mean, the, the, the only way that we could approximate to that is if every Christian today alive were to gather in one place at one time. It's incomprehensible. It's just, that's, that's insane. But that's exactly what happened here. All of God's people, all of God's people 
are gathered at the foot of this mountain. And this is what Deuteronomy 4, verses 12 to 13 says. Then the Lord spoke to you. This is Moses talking to the people. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. So God spoke to all the people. All the people are hearing the voice of God. Deuteronomy 5.22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. Over two million people at one time heard the voice of the I Am speak to them these words. Technically... The Ten Commandments are actually ten words. Uh, That's the the way to translate the Hebrew word. The word in Hebrew is just the word for words. So the Ten Commandments are ten words, as they're called in Exodus 34, 28. And God's people are to live by his revealed words. God relates to us, and he relates to us by means of revelation. And that's the basis for how we relate to him. That's the basis for our entire lives. This is how God makes known his character and his will. The law is an expression of both. I remember the first time that this really became clear to me was in seminary when we were talking about, I took a course on Christian ethics And that was one of the big ideas that came through is that the law is an expression of God's character. And of course, I I knew that, but I'd never been, I never understood it in the way that it was communicated there, is that the law expresses God's character. It's not as though there's there's God over here and then there's the law, or or there's, there's God and then he just gives this thing called law, or that there's this law under which God has to abide. No, the law is an expression of who God is. It's an expression of his justice. It's an expression of his righteousness, his holiness. It tells us who he is, and it tells us what he wants. So Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of of God. One of the things that I try to tell our kids during family worship, uh, sometimes more patiently than at other times, is that this is God's word. Like this, we are, we are reading the word of God. Let's pay attention. Let's listen. Let's think about what is here. This is our life, Jesus says. We live by God's word, not by bread alone. And here we see God relating to his people By revealing himself in words. Let me say this to us as we think about an implication of this. Relating must come through reading. Let me say that again. Relating must come through reading. Either having it read to you or reading it yourself. We relate to God based on revelation. How do cults happen? How do all sorts of aberrations of Christianity occur? Why are there so many weird views of God? All these polls that people take and supposed evangelical Christians say all this weird stuff about God, totally divorced from the Bible. It's because we don't really believe that relating comes by way of reading. We think we can just relate to God in our own way, out of our own consciousness, out of our own imagination of who he is. No, that's never been how God's people relate to him. We relate to him through his revelation. We must, as Augustine heard as the children were playing and he was weeping before the Lord, we must take up and read. We must take in the word of God. And I would say this to you children out there this morning. This is how you're going to come to know who God is. 
by taking up and reading the Bible for yourself. Don't rely on your mom and dad to read the Bible to you. Don't rely on your teachers at church or if you go to a Christian school uh, for them to read the Bible. Take up and read for yourself and just see how God will show himself to you. See how he will show you his glory. He will draw you to love him and treasure him and trust him. Take up and read. Secondly, he redeems and requires. So we see that he relates and reveals. And secondly, he redeems and requires. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord, or Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the very first part of verse 3, you shall. See that connection. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall. We have spent the last year looking at the substance of what God is referring to here in verse 2. For an entire year, for 12 months now, we have been looking at what it is that God is saying here in verse 2. How Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, brought the descendants of these three patriarchs out of Egyptian slavery. He multiplied them over centuries into a great nation. And by the way, you know, as we think about the question, why is it that God let them just languish in Egypt for, for all those centuries? I mean, really? Well, we know at least two reasons. We know that God, that the, the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And so God is even graciously he's graciously overseeing the sin of the Amorites. He's graciously overseeing the sin of the Canaanites because he's going to send his people in to judge the Canaanites. That's part of it. But here's the other reason. They needed to multiply. They needed to multiply. And we all know it takes time to multiply. So, that is the reason that they were left there in Egypt for the time that they were. And God multiplied them into a great nation. He brought them from a family to an incredibly large nation. He sent Moses to deliver them. He brought 10 devastating, God-glorifying, Egyptian God-crushing plagues on the Egyptians. He brought his people out with much wealth as the Egyptians rushed them to leave, giving them, taking off all sorts of jewelry and just throwing it their way. He led them through the wilderness, parted the Red Sea, destroyed their enemies, provided water and food, and now he has brought them to himself in covenant at the foot of a mountain in great awe. That's what we've looked at over the last 12 months, and that is what is in view in verse 2. All of that to say, in short, God is their Savior. God is the Savior of Israel. And that's what verse 2 is about. God declares his salvation. After stating who he is to them, he states what he has done for them. So he is their God. He's their I am God. He is their God who is with them, who is present with them, past, present, and future. He will always be with them. He is the I am, and now he states what he has done. He gives them, in short, a very brief history lesson. And because of what God has done for them, he has a claim on them. And so we read this. Uh, uh, this is a quote from one commentator, uh, Douglas Stewart. He says, By reason of having rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, Yahweh had a claim on his chosen people. So God has a claim on them. He owns them. And that's part of the purpose of verse 2. It gives the basis for these demands. And so we ask the question, how is it that God can make these demands of Israel in particular? Well, the first place our mind goes, of course, is, well, he's God, right? I mean, hello. But, but, but that is true, but that's not what's precisely in view here. Yes, it is true that God can make demands of all. God has a claim on all. He's the creator of all. He, he spread out the nations on the earth through Noah's three sons. So in that sense, God has a claim on all. God can make these demands 
to all. But how is it that he can make these demands of Israel as a constituted people in particular? And the answer here in verse 2 is because he is their savior. He is their savior in a way that he was not the savior of any other people on earth. Yes, he's the creator over all. Yes, he's Lord of all. Yes, he can make claims on all people. But Israel he saved. Israel he redeemed. And we find the same thing in the New Testament. How God first gives what he has done. And then calls his people to go and do. So Ephesians chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. This is one that's fairly well known. Therefore, be imitators after what Paul has said in chapter 4. Practically speaking and theologically speaking. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, as Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is calling the believers to go out and love, he he reminds them, woven into that and preceding that, of the fact that God loved them first. God loved us first, and so therefore, we go out and love. God has done it, and now we do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 to 20. Paul says there, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The same logic there. Israel was bought with a price. As verse 2 says, they were redeemed by God. They were ransomed by God. Delivered, liberated, saved. All those words, rescued by God. God has a claim on them. Israel is not its own. And we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And that price is the blood of Christ. We've been ransomed from our former life. We've been redeemed. We've been delivered from sin, death, and hell. And now God owns us as he owned Israel. And here's the point that I'm getting across as we move from verse 2 to verse 3. So the space between verse 2 and verse 3 is so theologically important and so practically important for us. I I want you to see that. The space between verse 2 and verse 3. God redeems and then he requires. He redeems first and he requires second. His requirements for his people are built on his redeeming grace. His commands, his imperatives, his do's and don'ts of scripture flow out of his redeeming grace. This is what I have done. I am the Lord your God. I saved you. Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what you loved? Do you remember what you worshiped? Do you remember how utterly lost you were? I saved you. That's what the Lord says to his people. To quote one theologian whom I I really enjoy reading, uh, John Frame. He says this very simply, grace precedes and motivates works. That's the theological point that we have here between verse 2 and verse 3. That's what we need to get clearly in view is that grace precedes and motivates. There's a logical and a temporal preceding, and it motivates works. It fuels works within our soul. So think about this. If you have a motivation problem, it's a grace problem. Right? Think about that for a moment. The, the more that our, our comprehension of God's grace, of the verse 2, the more we comprehend verse 2, the more motivation, the more push, the more fuel, the more energy, the more vitality verses 3 to 17 will have. As we live out the Christian life. And here we see that it is not just the case 
in the New Testament that we get this. Yeah, sometimes people think that. Oh, you know, Old Testament was all about, about law, and it was just all about doing things that God says. And then the New Testament, there's like this radical disjuncture between the old and the new. And we know that there is discontinuity. As we think about Hebrews, is a great letter for understanding that discontinuity. And yet we also know that there is great continuity. And here we see in the space between verse 2 and verse 3 that grace was motivating all of this from the get-go. And that's how someone like Paul can write of someone like Abraham in the middle of his description of justification by faith through grace, that this is how Abraham was saved. And this is how every single Israelite in the Old Testament was saved as well, by grace. This is how Shadrach Meshach and Abednego had the courage to stand and not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. This is how Daniel had the courage to pray continually, even though he knew that he would be thrown in the lion's den. And many other stories. Grace precedes and motivates works. And it has always been that way. We could think of it this way, grace, so go. Or grace, so good works. Or grace, so godliness. Anything that that we could go and do, we must understand that it's like an arrow. There is grace on one side. There's an arrow pointing toward all of our works. So this gives us two pitfalls to avoid. The first is, don't rob the motivation from works. Think about that. How many of us this morning are just working away unmotivated by grace? Think about that. You know how you can know that when bitterness starts to kind of kindle and anger and frustration and you start judging other people, right? I'm doing all this and they're not doing anything. I think that's an indicator. That's the sort of thing that happens when we rob the motivation from works. But the second pitfall is this. Don't rob the purpose from grace. And people do both. People become legalistic. They rob grace from works. They rob the motivation from works. And people become licentious and just void of of, of any real understanding of holiness When they rob the purpose from grace. Grace always has an arrow. It always has an arrow to the glory of God through the holiness of the saint. Through the holiness of one of God's people. It never comes without an arrow. If your grace, your definition of grace has no arrow pointing far above. It's not grace. It's not biblical grace. Grace drives us to kill sin. It drives us to hate sin. It drives us to love God's holiness and to want to shine forth God's glory. It drives us to sacrificial, dying to self. It drives us away from all idols. Grace that just stews in itself is not biblical grace. It's justification for sin and it's idolatry. And it presumes on God and blasphemes God, the God of grace. So, as Christians, what do we make of these requirements of the Ten Commandments? I mean, we're no longer under the law. This is the language Paul uses frequently in Romans, for example, which we spent some time going through. We're no longer under the law. So what do we do with these Ten Commandments? We're not standing there this morning at the foot of that mountain. So what do we do with these? Well, this is a huge question, right? This is a really big one. Volumes and volumes of books have been written on the relationship between law and gospel and uh, the way that the law relates to the Christian and the relationship of the covenants and all that. So many volumes. We just stack up them on on the stage up here. But what I want to do is just give you four words. And I think these four words are good starting points for understanding what we as Christians are to make of the requirements of the Ten Commandments. 
as we think about how God redeems and He requires, because we are reading this this morning as Christian Scripture. We are reading this this morning with the desire to obey what it is the Lord is putting before us. We're reading this this morning in a desire to appropriate the Ten Commandments for ourselves. So what does that look like mentally and in practice? And I think these four words are at least a start. So first word is Christ. Christ. Well, I'll go ahead and give all four of them to you. Christ, spirit, love, and heart. Christ, spirit, love, and heart. So first, Christ. The Ten Commandments show us the character of Christ. Now, that's mind-boggling when you think about it, right? What was Christ doing? What was it like to be around Christ? He was a perfect law keeper. Everything that we read in the Ten Commandments, Christ did perfectly without fail ever. He never coveted anything. What? Never coveted anything. Not a single moment in his human nature, as we think about Christ with the divine nature and human nature, did he look to anything for his ultimate satisfaction aside from his Father. The Ten Commandments show us Christ's perfect character. Christ actually lived these. He lived these perfectly. Psalm 1 is fulfilled in Christ. One who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on it day and night. Guess what? Not a single one of us in this room is a Psalm 1 person. But Christ is. He was, is perfectly the Psalm 1 person person. He loved the law and he lived the law. And he died in our place to fulfill the law because we don't keep it. He died in our place. He he perfectly lived the law and then in accordance with the sacrificial system in the law, he died in our place to make atonement for our law breaking. Our lives are littered with law breaking. Littered, filled, saturated, inundated, enveloped by, just any word, just pick it. Full of sin, full of law breaking. Not Christ's. Zero for him, untold stacks and piles for us. What a difference. Christ perfectly lived these and we do not. So the Ten Commandments reveal Christ and our need of him to save us, right? We cannot climb each rung of the Ten Commandments up to heaven. The Ten Commandments cannot become a tower of Babel. We will not make it to heaven by climbing up this ladder. We need the perfect lawkeeper to die in fulfillment of the law in our place and to impute to our account that perfect lawkeeping. So that when God sees us, he doesn't see lawbreaker. Though we are, he sees lawkeeper as Christ perfectly was. So that is most certainly the first word. Christ. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In that sense, the law has this awful effect. It has this awful effect in every sinner in that it it puts a spotlight on our sin. It shows us all the muck and all the nastiness, all the ways that we don't keep the Ten Commandments. When they are fully and rightly understood as principles, as headings for worlds and worlds of ethical teaching. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. But 1 Peter 2 verse 22 says that Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the only way as we come to the law, we have to understand we're never going to make it to God by keeping this law. We look to Christ who kept it, who died in our place. That's fundamental. Christ. Second, a lot of people stop there. Right? That's, That's not where you stop. 
That's not where you stop. The second word is spirit. And here's what I mean by this. By the spirit, we come to obey the law. We come to have the law written on our hearts. And that's amazing. As we think about the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit, there's so many aspects to that. It is like a diamond. There's so many facets to the work of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. But keep this in mind. The Holy Spirit writes this law on our hearts, weaves it into our lives at the deepest level. Jeremiah 31, 33, the the new covenant passage, which talks about what would happen when the Spirit would, would be poured out, says, I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. Where is the Ten Commandments for the believer? Right up in your heart, at the deepest level of who you are. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It's all in the inner being. It's been put there by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When we walk according to the Spirit, we are fulfilling the law of God that is now written on our hearts, not just tablets of stone and not just sheets of parchment. Third, the word love. Christ, spirit, and the word love. The summation of the Ten Commandments are the two great commandments. So Jesus gives us a hermeneutical grid. He gives us a a, a way of understanding what the Ten Commandments are. And he does that in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. This was already there. This is what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, you can hang all ten commandments. If we think about the traditional way of dividing them up, the first four dealing with our vertical relationship with God and the latter six dealing with love of neighbor. Love of God, first four. Love of neighbor, the latter six, although it's all love of God. Then we are meant to understand that to love God and to love neighbor is to fulfill the ten commandments. And how does that come to be? Well, the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's how we come to love. That's how we are law keepers, though not under the law. And then finally, the word heart. The word heart. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the clearest expression of This great truth, and that is that all the commands of God have to do with the heart. They have to do with the inner motivations of the heart. We cannot just say, I did not strike my uh, brother dead like Cain killed Abel. Jesus digs down below that. And he says, but you called him a fool. But you're angry with your brother. That's the seed of murder. And that's murder of the heart. So it's not merely just, okay, I haven't killed anybody. I didn't steal. I haven't stolen anything since I was about eight or nine years old. Okay, you, you can't go through the Ten Commandments like that. You have to go down to the heart. You have to get a sledgehammer and break open this veneer of righteousness that we have because we don't look at the heart All those nasty, self-centered, prideful, godless, idolatrous motives of the heart. That's where it is. The commandments of God have to do with the heart. Jesus shows us that in the Sermon on the Mount with anger and with lust. It's not just adultery. It's also looking upon a woman with lust. And it's not just murder. It's also anger. And we know that's true because of the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is entirely focused on the heart. Do not covet. No one can see that. 
How many of us this morning are coveting right now? I mean, it, it's happening, right? It's happening. It happens in us. Nobody can see it. God can see it. It's of the heart. These laws, these commands, these commandments are meant to take us to the heart. So keep these words in mind as we go through the Ten Commandments. Keep in mind Christ, Spirit, love, and heart. And we won't touch on those again and again, over and over and over, but that gives us a, hopefully a, a grid for understanding, an interpretive grid for understanding all that we're going to see. And like I said, that's just scratching the surface, but it at least helps us to understand that we cannot push these laws away and hold them out there, just focusing on the first point, Christ. We have to also consider what the Spirit has done through Christ in us and is doing in us as we grow in His likeness in the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have given us here in your word in these first two verses. We thank you for what lies ahead with the Ten Commandments. And we pray that um, you would help us to see what it is that you require of us as human beings. That we would have just a much stronger understanding of Christian ethics as we work through a passage like this and as we go out into the world, as we go home, as we relate to our spouse and children, as, as we relate to our brothers and sisters in Christ, as we engage with our family members and our natural families and, and those who don't know you, as, as we interact with people in general, Father, that we would see what it is that you, our Redeemer, require of us as we live out in the Spirit This heart religion, this religion of love, this Christ religion, this way of Christ. Father, we pray that you would inform us, that you would convict us, that you would comfort us and strengthen us, Lord. And would we, as the writer of Hebrews says, would we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who intercedes for us before the throne of the Father. Lord, we praise you for this time. We ask that you would bless the Lord's Supper and use it to draw us nearer to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.